two psalms this morning and again this evening. And let me share with you why I selected the ones that I did. Both are psalms of David. Uh, This morning is Psalm 19. Uh, This evening, Psalm 51. Psalm 19 is a psalm of the law, the be- a beautiful reflection of the word of the Lord. This evening, Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance, David's reflection on his uh, failure, his grievous failure to live up to God's law. So this morning, God's word. This evening, our failure to live according to God's word. But let's begin with uh, Psalm 19. And I'll introduce it with a memory I have uh, from one of my oldest, my oldest son. Um, his name is Holt. You'll get to meet my family uh, this evening if you come back. Uh, we, they were supposed to be here this morning, and I literally could not wake them up from jet lag. Like, I was shaking my children, and they would, they are in a coma. They're not asleep right now, they're in a coma. I, I hope they come out of their coma before this evening. Um, and I, too, am a little jet lag, so forgive me if I don't make sense. I think I'm going to make sense, but we'll see how this works. Uh, but my oldest son, when he was uh, little, you know, there's there's certain lines, for you pa- parents, you know this, there are certain lines from your children's uh, childhood that you never forget. And there's one that my uh, oldest son, Holt, said when he was just learning to talk that perfectly describes the message of Psalm 19. Uh, we are playing in a park uh, together in the late afternoon, and the sun was uh, setting behind the clouds, and it just created one of those majestic uh, Kentucky sunsets. And all of a sudden, my son stops playing, looks up at the sky, and just says, wow, good job, God. And then he goes back to playing as if He didn't even recognize the profound statement that he just made. And to this very day, I often find myself using that simple childlike confession. Good job, God. When I'm struck by the beauty of God, his creation, the beauty of his scripture, the beauty of his providence. I think we should all adopt that as a simple praise of adoration. Good job, God. If you could sum up Psalm 19 in three words, that would be it. Good job, God. Psalm 19 is a reflection on the different ways God reveals himself to us. The words of the Lord, I'm calling it. And each is intended to end in praise. Each is intended to evoke good job, God, from all of us. And there are three here for us to explore. Three words from the Lord, so to speak, telling of the glory of the Lord. His creation, his scripture, and his image. Let's look at each of them together this morning. First, his creation. First verse of Psalm 19. Heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims above his handiwork. So according to David, this beautiful world is not aimlessly beautiful. Instead, its beauty is making a declaration. It's making a proclamation to all of us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. God is the creator of all things. And all things at all times proclaim that this is so. Creation is speaking to us, telling us a story for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. 
Continue on, it says, day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, their words to the end of the world. That speech, those words, that voice going forth over all the earth is what philosophers have been, have been grasping to understand for centuries. Despite the most more recent philosophical claim that there actually is no telos to be discovered, no grand purpose to existence, that such questions are merely uh, ways of coping with the meaningless of life. And yet every single one of us, even the most committed unreligious among us, deep down implicitly knows that that is a denial of what we all know to be true. The reason we search for meaning in this world is because there is meaning out there to be discovered. We are thirsty because there is a such thing as water be found. Creation is trying to tell us something. We know this to be true. So what is it trying to tell us? Well, the claim here in this psalm is that creation is always echoing its creator. And a helpful philosophical exercise to discover the truth of Psalm 19 is to ask two questions when it comes to creation. What and why? What? Look at anything and ask, what is it? What is? What are these chairs? What is all this architecture made of? Well, it's wood, I guess, extracted from trees. Okay, but what are trees? Well, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen. Yes, but what are these? Well, electrons and protons. Yes, but what are these? Well, elementary particles is what they're telling us now. Yes, but what are these? Well, we don't know yet. Perhaps the next generation of scientists will answer that question. Great, make sure to ask them, what is that? Eventually, this question will force us into one of two answers. Either the absurdity of everything is fashioned from nothing, or there is something. Something transcendent behind it all. There is a metaphysical behind all the physical. Hebrews 11.3 says it like this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What is visible is created by something invisible, specifically the words of God. What is everything made of? God's words. God's word that spoke creation into existence, and we are told God's word that is sustaining existence as we speak. Everything you observe is, in a very real sense, a word from God. And what are these words saying to us? Well, that's discovered when we ask the question, why? And here we come to the limitations of physical sciences that speak to the question, what? And get into the philosophical question. Who understands the human eye better? The optometrist evaluating eyes through science or a lover staring deeply into the eyes of the one they love? The former can answer the question, what? The latter is exploring the question, why? Why? What a vexing 
question that truly is. Why is there something rather than nothing? And more importantly, why does the something that is exist? Why? Here's our psalm's answer. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The sky proclaims His handiwork. Could it be as simple as the why behind all of existence is God showing off? That's what the Bible says. The universe is His canvas, which He has filled with living art, showcasing the glory of the artist. Every narrative of nature is about God. A living, breathing display of God's glory. The answer to the question why, pressed to its rightful end, always ends in something about our God. That childlike instinct to view a sunset and shout, good job, God, is not an immature and adolescent response. We receive it as cute in its naivety, but perhaps we should receive it as profound in its clarity. Maybe we, the enlightened and educated, have much to learn from our children and the way they experience this world. That's what the psalm is claiming. It's a childlike psalm saying, good job, God. There is much to see if we can see it with that childlike wonder and say, good job, God. God is vast. And transcendent. Do you know how I know this? I've stood under a star-filled sky, cloudless night on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, just a sheet of stars. And I saw how vast and transcendent he is for myself. God is beautiful. And he's lovely. How do I know? I've driven down country Kentucky roads and witnessed the rolling hills of bluegrass horse farms. God is tender-hearted and compassionate. How do I know? I've watched my wife four times holding nursing babies at her breasts. God is mighty. He is not to be trifled with. How do I know? I've hiked to the peaks of the Rocky Mountains in the western part of the United States and stood at these majestic mountains. And on and on and on I could go. Because creation is constantly pouring forth speech, speech, speech that tells of its creator's glory. And we as Christians should be very fluent in this language of God, by the way. Enjoy creation and let that enjoyment always end in good job, God. But creation is not the only thing testifying here in Psalm 19. It then transitions from the words of creation to the words of Scripture. Let's look next at Scripture, God's law. David's language is taken up a notch when he starts talking about the law. He certainly has a high view of creation, but when he begins to speak of God's law, his words speak of flawlessness. Listen to these statements. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord is pure. The rules of the Lord are true. This is lofty language. And reveals this, this firm, deep-seated conviction that this book right here is in fact the very word of God. His perfect, sure, right, pure revelation to mankind. So whereas creation reveals God in implicit ways, the scriptures reveal God in explicit ways. 
Theologians call creation general revelation. Scripture, special revelation. That book is given as a special revelation of God with a special purpose, speaking to us in a way nothing else can. Look again at verses 7 and 8 and see the special purpose that God has for His Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Do you see how David believes that there's something that Scripture offers us that nothing else does? A revival, a wisdom, an enlightening that is found nowhere else. So in creation, we see clearly that there is a God. In Scripture, we discover who that God is. In creation, we find a longing for God. In Scripture, we find the answer to that longing. In creation, we feel a sense of unworthiness, guilt, and shame. In Scripture, we find how to be free of our unworthiness, guilty, guilt, and shame. In creation, we know that we ought to be living a certain way. In Scripture, we discover how we ought to live. And because this is such a unique revelation and testimony, it is to be treated as precious and desirable above all else. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Do you desire your Bible more than your finances, more than your possessions? Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Do you desire your Bible more than the sweetest pleasures of life? Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Do you believe that your greatest reward in life is found in obedience to your Bible? Because God has revealed His ultimate purpose in Scripture, the Scriptures are worthy of our ultimate love and desire. And so, uh, the implication and application could not be more obvious. Do not neglect your Bible. So many people, I'm a minister, I do this a lot, so many people are wanting to hear from God while their Bibles are collecting dust. And if you say, no, no, that's not what I mean. I actually want to audibly hear from God. Okay, there are apps that read the Bible out loud to you now. The longer I'm a minister, I've been at it for just over 17 years now the more I find myself returning to the basics. God has given you a book with a purpose which nothing else has. You cannot find it anywhere else. So it is impossible to flourish as a Christian. It is impossible to flourish as a human being apart from your Bible. So let's not make this more complicated than it needs to be. Stop neglecting your Bible. God's definitive word to you and your life. Study the Bible, meditate on the Bible, memorize the Bible, and most importantly, obey the Bible. You will never ever regret making the scriptures central to your life because the scriptures are what they claim to be. What they're claimed to be here in this psalm, the infallible word of the Lord to you. Okay, so we've looked at the words of creation and scripture. Now the psalm takes a seemingly unexpected turn. Let's look next at the word of his image. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep you, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now, where did that come from? David has been elegantly praising God's creation and then God's word. But then this poetic, beautiful reflection suddenly turns into a tragic lament, a passionate plea for forgiveness and repentance. Here's what's going on. The glory of God's creation, the glory of God's law, only heightens David's awareness of his failure to glorify God. Psalm 19 is about the three ways in which God has revealed himself for his own glory. Creation, scripture, and his image. Creation, David sees, is fulfilling its purpose, saying what God created it to say. Scripture, fulfilling its purpose, saying what God created it to say. Then David looks inward and is overwhelmed with his failure to be who he was created to be, to do what he was created to do, to say what he was fashioned to say, overwhelmed with his failure to glorify God. And what is so tragic is that we image bearers of God above everything else in all of creation are the greatest word of God about God and his glory. Psalm 19 traces the hierarchy of revelation. Creation, scripture, and then us. To us alone belongs that noble title, Imago Dei. We are living, breathing words of his image. Icons of the divine. His representation, his authority, his ambassadors within his creation, perfectly reflecting his glory. So that you should be able to look at humanity and say, that's what God is like. And yet David laments the sad tragedy that he has failed to do the one thing he was created to do. And we are all familiar with David's shame, are we not? We were created for one and only one purpose, soli deo gloria. The glory of God alone. And friends, we have failed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, we tend to think of our sin only horizontally, which what meaning meaning what does it do to others and what does it do to me? But we confess our sin already in this service. We confess our horizontal sins vertically, which when you think about it is a strange practice. Wouldn't you find it strange if one of you harmed Andy Longwe? And I said, I forgive you. It was an offense against Andy, not you, not me. So so Andy should be the one doing the forgiving, not me. But if I harm Andy, I should say sorry to God. Why is that? Because sin, first and foremost, is against God. A violation of God's image and glory. You see, our calling as image bearers cannot be denied. We are reflecting him, whether we want to or not. That's sobering, isn't it? What a waiting thought that as his image bearers, you are constantly making a statement about the God you image. If we are hateful, then we are saying God is hateful. If we are greedy, 
then we are saying God is greedy. If we act unjustly, then we are saying our God is unjust. If we are manipulative and exploitive, we are saying God is manipulative and exploitive. If we are harmful and abusive, we are saying God is harmful and abusive. And cursed be the thought. People are supposed to look at our lives and say, good job, God. But instead, they often, with good reason, are tempted to say, bad God, bad job, God, or bad God. Our sins turn people away from God because of the lie our sins tell about God. Sin twists the image of God and tells a lie about the Creator. That's what we're doing. We're spreading lies about the Creator. And maybe a good question of repentance on this Sabbath day in preparation for this evening when we will look more in depth at sin and repentance is to assess your life asking, what lies are you spreading about God? Yes, we are all sinners, but personalize your own sinfulness. Unique, what lies do you tend to tell about your Creator? And I would only say shame on us. Shame on all of us. Creation declares the glory of God. Scriptures articulate the glory of God. But the ones designed to literally display and reflect the glory of God, His very image bearers, have rejected His purpose and defiled His image. And yet the God whom we have offended, the one whose glory we have marred, will not surrender His purpose to our failures. He terrified. And that is the purpose of his salvation. It is not just you being forgiven for what you have done. You being forgiven for your sins. It's you being changed. It is your redemption back to God's original purpose for you to tell of his glory once again with your life. And this is certainly David's hope in the psalm. Of course he's pleading for God's forgiveness, verse 12, declare me innocent of my hidden faults. But it's more than that. He wants to be different. He longs to join with creation and Scripture in glorifying the Creator. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And then it ends with this famous heartfelt plea. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. This is a cry for fulfilled purpose. In David's view, he will join with creation and join with Scripture in glorifying God when the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart are acceptable in the sight of the Lord. There is so much more to obedience than just avoiding the folly of sin. To obey God is literally to fulfill your destiny. And this is the destiny our gospel offers us. Yes, of course, it is true that Jesus died for failures like us. The true word became flesh. The true word to which all lesser words of God point became flesh. Why? To forgive us for the lies that we have told about our Creator. All very true. But press it further. Why? 
not just for your forgiveness, but for your purpose. Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly pleasure and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why does your repentance, why does your obedience matter? Why is it important for you to tell the truth? Why is it important for you to resist illicit temptation? Why is it important to be kind and generous? Why is it important for you to care for the least of these? Why is it important to obey God? Is it to avoid the consequences of sin? Is it to soothe your guilty conscience? Is it to just be a good Christian and impress other people? Why does it matter what you do? God's glory is at stake. What you are doing is making a profound profound declaration about your God. Therefore, everything you do in public and in private matters. So Psalm 19, all things exist for the glory of God. Or to say it like a child, all things exist for us to say, good job, God. We see this in creation. We see this in scripture. May it be seen in us as well. Let me pray. Our Father, I pray that you would bring a wave of repentance to this room. Let it begin with me, the preacher. Lord, I preach to myself before I preach to my friends. Would you bring repentance? Not just for me, but for all of us. May we fulfill our destiny to image you rightly. Lord, we look at creation and we say, good job, Lord. We look at scripture and we say, good job. Lord, would people look at our lives and glory to the God that we serve. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, we pray. Amen.